Hello, everybody. It's me, Peaches Christ. And you're listening to another episode of the Midnight Mass podcast, where we worship all of our favorite cult movies, icons, genres, filmmakers, and more. Joining me, as always, is my trusty co-host, my friend, collaborator, the filmmaker himself. It's Michael Varadi. Hi, Michael. Hi, Peaches. I cannot wait to talk about this week's movie because I feel like a lot of people knew that we were going to get here at some point. We are <laughs> we're in the car. We're in Maryland. We're passing through Baltimore and we're headed straight to Mortville. I think if you yes. read the description, you know, desperate living. Yay! Yay. <laughs> you know what might surprise people is... Um, well, it could have been any John Waters film to start, but I do think that if we had chosen Female Trouble or Pink Flamingos, that that might have been the more um, expected choice for our first, uh, you know, Midnight Mass podcast. But I have to say that this choice has um, sentimental meaning for me because I had my Midnight Mass show, of course, here in San Francisco. And the first time a celebrity ever came and did a Midnight Mass show was way back in 2000 or 2001. And it was for a desperate living screening. And it was, of course, uh, the incomparable, legendary, the iconic Mink Stoll who came and did the show at Midnight Mass. So doing the Midnight Mass podcast, it felt only natural even though at the the Midnight Mass event, Michael, the first John Waters film we ever screened was um, Pink. Oh no, it was Female Trouble in 1998, and then we did Pink Flamingos after that, and then we did Desperate Living. But because Mink Stoll agreed to come, it has real um, sentimental meaning for me. And then, of course, you and I uh, have have a history with Mink Stoll um, because you got to work with her on the All About Evil tour. Yeah, I uh, really loved the opportunity to not only hang out and spend time with such a verified cult film icon as Mink, but to do so kind of on the road, you know, not kind of on the road, it was on the road. We traveled to multiple cities together. I remember many mornings, uh, you know, complaining about the continental breakfast or lack thereof with her at whatever hotel we were staying in. <laughs> and uh, it was just a truly great adventure that uh, I will cherish forever. And I really felt like we got to know each other on that trip. And I, you know, how often do you get this opportunity to share that kind of memory with someone who you grew up idolizing? You know, that's what this Midnight Mass yeah. is all about. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's very surreal for me. Of course, uh, for those of you who don't know, I made a feature film called All About Evil, and uh, which is going to be re-released soon. I can Yay. actually say that with some confidence. I've been <laughs> spending some time in a post-production house working on all the new masters. Um, it, it was uh, a dream come true to be able to make a feature film, but to have people such as uh, Mink Stoll, Cassandra Peterson, who's Elvira, of course, and Natasha Leone, people that I've really, really admired. Natasha, of course, was was younger, but, you know, I watched N Natasha Leone on Pee Wee's Playhouse, you know? So these are people that I actually grew up watching, you know, in movies and on television, and to have them be in my film, and then to go on the road with us, you know? Um, you know, Cassandra appeared at different screenings. Natasha uh, was at the San Francisco and New York and LA screenings. And then, then Mink really went into the Midwest with us and did a bunch of the shows. That was uh, 
an amazing dream come true. And like you say, um, we really did grow up uh, watching them and loving them. And Mink in particular is one of those people who uh, I always think is maybe one of the most quoted actors in the history of cinema because of all the great, incredible dialogue that she's brilliantly delivered. So I have to ask Michael, what is your favorite Mink Stole character from any John Waters movie? And then I'm gonna ask, what's your favorite line of dialogue? Oh, I mean, there's so many. I mean, I do have an affinity for Dottie Hinkle just because of how terrorized she is in Serial Mom. But if there's a character that's closer to my heart than Connie Marble, I I, I don't know because I, her outlook is perfect. There are two kinds of people <laughs> in the world, my kind of people and assholes. You know? Okay. I mean, that that line is, you know fucking just great. So I, I really have trouble with this question as well. So just to refresh your memories, Mink, of course, was Connie Marble, uh, Peggy Gravel in Desperate Living, Taffy Davenport in Female Trouble. She was Dottie Hinkle in Serial Mom, uh, and on and on, all the way up to Marge the Neuter. You know, she played Marge <laughs> the Neuter in A Dirty Shame. Where, uh, you know, and even, you know, in A Dirty Shame, I, I, I feel like there are these lines of dialogue where she just steals the scene, you know, away from Tracy Allman. You know, uh, Mink is just such a brilliant performer. But for me, I think I'd have to say Taffy Davenport is the, the character um, nearest to my heart. I mean, I love Taffy. I love that she is uh, such a brat and yet so, so likable at the same time. And my favorite line of dialogue is, I wouldn't suck your lousy cock if I was suffocating. And there was oxygen in your balls. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's inspired. Truly. And one of my favorite things about Mink is because she has delivered all of these outrageous lines over the course of, you know, her career. Uh, she knows that people love these quotes and the, this like kind of body presentation. And as we talk to her about later, sometimes it kind of gives them the wrong idea of who she is as a person because she plays outrageous so very well. And she embodies that, uh, you know, waters, uh, archetype, you know, for lack of a better term. And, uh, it was great to be on the road with her because, you know, you would be sitting at the table and someone would come up to her and like say one of these lines or say something really outrageous. And she was always amazing about it. And I was like, how often do people come up to you and just say depraved shit? And she's like, every day. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the first time I introduced her to Sharon Needles. Uh, and I was like a um, little nervous because I knew Sharon was so excited. Of course, Sharon is a huge John Waters fanatic, right? And as as we both know, Sharon can be unpredictable and uh, and a bit a bit you know uh, she can be shocking sometimes. So I was like, okay, I wonder how this is gonna go. And and so I say, Mink, this is Sharon. Sharon, this is Mink, and we're out at dinner. And and Sharon goes, I love your tits. <laughs> oh my God, your tits and pink flamingos. You just, uh, you have the fucking, you have the greatest tits. I love them. And Mink did not miss a beat 
was actually genuinely flattered and was like, God, my tits were great. You know, she just like went on this journey with Sharon where they talked about, you know, Mink's naked body as Connie Marble. And Mink was talking about, you know, how thin she was. But, you know, of course, it's because they were poor and they weren't, you know, they didn't have food. Um, So anyway, so today, of course, uh, as you know, we are we are going to Mortville. um, And Michael, in, in terms of John Waters and the canon of John Waters, you know, when you think about desperate living, it's the first, you know, non-divine vehicle. Um, it's really, I think, maybe the the last of the really, you know, shocking, shocking, you know, movies because yeah. um, polyester is a little softer. You know, what's your take on Desperate Living, and especially now, you know, looking at it all these years later? Well, what I love about Desperate Living is it literally starts with this frenetic energy and does not let up until the final credits. And I think that that is, of course, a credit to Mink's performance because the moment we meet her at the beginning of the movie, she's at 11 and carries that through. And you think, who's going to be crazier than this lady right here? And then they go ahead and show you. They take you into a world (laughs) that introduces you to a whole lot more crazy. And I think that this was a great direction for John Waters to go during these early days because it really showcased her. And, you know, he had already established this troupe of of actors that he worked with, the Dreamlanders. But you're right. Divine is a very strong presence in the early movies. So for Mink to have this opportunity to show you know, on her own, how powerful a performer and presence she is really, really is one of the things that makes Desperate Living stand out. And I think also when I think about this movie, it's just so cool to consider Pink Flamingos, cult film, Female Trouble, cult film, Desperate Living, cult film. It's like one Mm -hmm. after the other after the other firing on all cylinders. It's just a world that once you wrap yourself in, you want to keep experiencing yeah and it's 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 he it truly is an auteur who is uh you can see where john's influences come from but in no way is there anyone who's ever been able to imitate what he's done people have tried people try all the time but john's films are so unique and I think Desperate Living in many ways showcased how special John is as a filmmaker because even with the loss of something as grand and Godzilla-esque as as Divine, you know, such a spectacle and such a superstar, uh, Mink was able to step up and, you know, in the entire cast of women that, you know, lead this show, you know, from from Edith Massey to Liz Renee to Sue Lowe, to Jean Hill, you know, to Cookie Mueller. You know, it's like it's a female led cult movie um, that is audacious. It is fearless. It is very, very dark. And it's ultimately, I think, about finding your tribe. You know, there there is this really queer theme of it as well, which is Mink ranting and raving because guess what? She's not meant for the suburbs. She's meant to live in a castle and be an evil queen and, and inject rabies into people. Well, there's that great interview where John Waters talks about The Wizard of Oz, right? And how he mm-hmm. said that as a kid, he didn't understand why Dorothy wanted to go home to this drab black and white world Why, when she could have stayed in the technicolor, you know, dreamscape. And in a way, and we talk about this with all of our interview subjects this week, this movie, I feel like, is an answer to that. 
the idea yeah. of the suburbs are that dreary place that Mink Stoll is literally breaking apart because she cannot stay there any longer. And she goes to that other place, that wild place, this John Waters version of Oz, which of course the John Waters version of Oz is Mortville and it's less Judy Garland and more G.G. Allen, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Without further ado, we do have the star of Desperate Living on today's podcast. Uh, this woman literally changed my life uh, by agreeing to come and do my show and, and then agreeing to go on tours with me and to do shows and to do my movie. And I just love her so much. Uh, she's become a family member. And here she is now. Here's our interview with Mink Stoll. Everybody. Oh my God, it is my huge honor to bring on our next guest. And I don't think I can ever introduce her as, as big or as grand as I would like to, or we'd be here all day long. This next guest is someone I grew up uh, admiring, worshiping. I would, I would imitate the dialogue that she spoke in films. And years later, she was the first person ever to come and join us at the live Midnight Mass in San Francisco. She, I've said it many, many times, she's changed my life forever uh, from that day forward and opened many doors for me. She also agreed to be in my feature film um, before she read the script, uh, which might not have been wise. We can ask her about that. Uh, but I love her. She's become a member of my family, a dear, dear friend, a mentor. Without further ado, it's the one, the only, the legendary Mink Stone. Hey. Yay. Hi, <laughs> Mink. It's, it's great to see you, Peaches. It's been too long. Oh, I know. Gosh, with this pandemic, a lot of people may not know, but you and I, right before the shutdown, we were about to get on a flight to go to England, where we were going to do our cabaret show, Idol Worship, together at the And What uh, Queer Arts Festival. And of course, we had the rug pulled out right from under us. And, you know, and I was going to go. I was <laughs> one of the very last people <laughs> to buy into the problem, to, the, to buy into the fact that pandemic was real no yeah. no I'm going I don't believe in this thing I'm going <laughs> and yeah. of course then you know I couldn't go they wouldn't let me go right so right it worked out fine for me instead of going on a plane to England I got on a plane to, to LA and I've been with my boyfriend out here ever since well let's let's call him what he is fiance Ooh. well yes. yes yes he is my we we are um yes without any definite plans to take it past that. Well, that's very much how, you know, yeah. I think Nihat and I are, right? Like everyone goes, yeah. oh my God, you've been together for 10 years. Why aren't you married? It's like, we will someday, <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we act as if when we're married. When the time is right, know. yes. Yeah. I wear a ring. I, we don't right. we act as if, as, yeah, we, 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 we play house. Well, yeah, don't lose it. Cause I did that and it did not no. go well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's glued on. There is super glue inside. Exactly. 
Well, Michael, why don't you uh, introduce the movie we're talking about? I, I had said to Mink um, that my hope is for our podcast is that Michael and I um, get to have uh, many seasons worth of the Midnight Mass podcast, which would mean uh, Mink would come back and be a guest many times so that we can delve into loads of the films uh, that she's starred in because we're really obsessed fans. But this week, this episode, we're, we're focusing on one film in particular. Yes, we are leaving the suburban city limits and we are heading into Mortville as we celebrate Desperate Living, where Mink, of course, played the legendary Peggy Gravel. And I, I cannot wait to dig into this movie because in your uh, film, Oeuvre, Mink, you've played a lot of dynamic characters. But this particular character just hits the screen with manic energy and, <laughs> and just runs from the opening scene to the very end. And I have to, I ask kind of with that in mind, how do you prepare a character like this? Because it feels like you're always at 11. I was, I was just constantly at 11. And I screamed through us throughout this entire movie. Actually, everybody in this movie screams. There's, <laughs> there's, there's one quiet moment. The moment that Griselda and I enter Mortville, there is no dialogue. And it is like, my ears go, oh. <laughs> it's such a relief. Um, I just, I can scream. I don't really have to prepare for it. I have no problem with loud. None at all. Thank God, because one of the most uh, quoted, I, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine a filmmaker who gets quoted more often than John Waters. And specifically, you have you know, you and Divine and Edie really share so much of that quotable dialogue, but really you get a lot of the dialogue that people quote over and over again. And that rant that starts with go home to your mother, you know, uh, with, is, is one of the this things- This isn't some <laughs> communist daycare center. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is epic. That is, that, that is a award-winning content. And with all the screaming, do you, okay, a couple questions. One, do you remember shooting it? And do you remember yes. how many takes it took? And how do you uh, protect your voice? I have no idea how many takes it took. I would imagine one. Oh. Because that was kind of what we did, was one. And, uh, I, well, I mean, there were different takes. We actually, you know, moved around the room and took, you know, a, this moment was shot from this angle and this moment was shot from this angle. And the stuff that's yelled out the window was all, you know, different takes. But I don't think, think I did. I couldn't have done more than one or two of any particular take uh -huh. because we just didn't. Right. You know, I mean, that's just how we worked. Uh, we were expected to know our lines and hit our marks first time. So, um, you know, I mean, I would come to the set, I, I would know my dialogue. You know, I went to Catholic school. I learned how to memorize early in life. So <laughs> I've lost I've lost some of that. It's a little harder for me now. But back then, I could memorize dialogue pretty easily. And I love, you know, anger and screaming. That's the easiest thing for an actor to do. Being quiet and pleasant and nice is ever so much harder to pull off. You know, so give me anything. You know, I can just pull curtains down from walls. I'm fine with all of that. Uh, I was, I, you know, but it was, that scene was shot in John's mother's bedroom. Oh, wow. John's parents' bedroom. Yes, that was their house. That we used for Peggy Gravel's house. So, uh, I mean, even the exterior was, you know, the house he, that's the house he lived in. Not he didn't live there then, but that's the house his parents lived in. 
Well, I think you spoke to something that uh, a lot of folks who, who don't understand how movies are made, but especially independent movies are made, is you don't often get the luxury of doing many takes. It's sort of everybody throws in and you do what you can. Uh, and uh, I really have always loved the the DIY spirit that this kind of generation of films came from, because it's like you said, you, did, you didn't really have the opportunity or the means to, to be going all day. So I'm curious, was there a heavy rehearsal process or were you just sent the script and you just came prepared? We would get the script. Um, I believe, I, you know, that's, when was that? Like 1902, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was 19, well, it was released in 1977 in May. So you probably shot it in 76 would be my, yeah. Which is almost 50 years ago or, tw- you know, 45 years ago. It's a long time. I'm an old woman now with a very weak memory, but <laughs> the, um, we would get, we would have a rehearsal process where we would get together and we would read the lines. Uh, and that's basically what we did. And we, we kind of do a sort of a blocking thing, but the blocking rehearsals never worked because it was always different when you got to the set, <laughs> when you got to, you know, whatever set you were working on because the camera wouldn't work in this place or the light was, you know, and there was always a reason. I think blocking rehearsals offset are almost pointless, but anyway, we would have rehearsals. Uh, but I mean, I basically knew what he wanted, which was hysteria. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's what he wanted. And I can do that. Hysteria is, <laughs> is so in my wheelhouse. And uh, so I really liked, I mean, there were things that made me, made me a little bit nervous. I was worried about breaking the base, but uh-huh. um, I did it. It got, you know, it worked. I did not have to clean it up. I don't know who did that, but. Um, <laughs> now were um, John's parents there? Do you remember? Or did they leave? They the were day? not. At okay. Home. They were not at home. <laughs> That's a great uh, bit of trivia. But I mean, they knew we were there. Right. You know, we had permission. Good, good. <laughs> uh, you know, but we were shooting in film and yeah. film is expensive and processing yeah. is expensive. So, you know, with video, it seems not to matter. You can just do it over and over and over again. Also, of course, time. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a lot to do that day. You know, we had we had the car, you know, mm-hmm. that Mercedes was, was a borrowed car or rented. I, you know, we knew who had owned it. I don't know whether rented it or borrowed it. You know, but we had to get the car back. You know, we just didn't, we had a lot to shoot. And you were work and you were working with kit children, which is never, you know, easy. We were working, yeah, there were several children. So all of those scenes, every scene had to happen fast. And then we had to get, I think we even did, we did the scene with the cop that same day. Wow. That's I'm one of my favorite pos- scenes. I'm not positive of that. It's really hard to go back and remember, but I think we might have, because that was the day we had the car. Oh, right. Oh, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. You have the car for one day. The cop scene is with the car. He, to me, is like so Baltimore. And that scene is <laughs> <laughs> that scene is just so wonderful. Him sniffing the panties and just yes. your reaction. I wanted to ask because, you know, uh, you were in Mondo Trasho as the tap dancer, among other things. You were in Multiple Maniacs as the the church lady, um, which, you know, was was such a fantastic role. Then comes Pink Flamingos, Connie Marble, legendary, vying for the filthiest person alive. And then 
In Female Trouble, you play a young daughter of Divine, Taffy. So for this yes. film, where and the other films, of course, were very Divine heavy right. vehicles. Now we've got a film that you're starring in, you're taking the lead and Divine's gone. And Peggy Gravel is really different from all those other characters. And so I'm wondering, how did you kind of, how did you discover Peggy or where did she come from in your mind? Well, like I said, she started from a point of hysteria. She started, <laughs> yeah. I, I will tell you one thing that I did. You know, Peggy wore a leg brace, mm. reason for which never explained. I was going to ask. Even to me. She was in Vietnam. Oh, yes. She don't <laughs> tell me. I don't know what Vietnam is like. And I actually did one day, in order, thinking, oh, I'll be a pro. I'm going to prepare for this role. I wore the leg. I took the leg race. I actually wore it downtown, to, oh. into downtown. Got on a bus mm. and worked to downtown Baltimore. And then walked around and walked and came back with it. And it still was like, what the fuck is this? But, you know, that was that was how I prepared for Peggy. Uh, <laughs> I wore the leg brace. Well, she definitely, she goes on quite the journey. Yes, she does. She absolutely does. I recently acquired, by the way, a really precious, wonderful thing. Uh, Van Smith, who designed the wardrobe uh, for everybody, all the costumes, and was, you know, technically the ugly expert. You know, he created everybody's <laughs> wonderful looks and horrible looks. He drew a wonderful wardrobe sketch in, I don't know what it's, I don't know what it's uh, drawn in, on tracing paper, which he gave to Dolores Deluxe, who made the outfit. Mm. And she recently moved to Portugal and gave me the drawing. Oh, really? Oh, that's yes. amazing. So, so I now own the Van Smith wardrobe drawing of Peggy Gravel as the evil princess. Ah. Uh. And it's, it's a wonderful... It's it's a really great. Well, we got you got we have to um, photograph it or scan it. Yeah, we would love to see it. Yeah. Well, I have to say that that look, as you know, was the first first time we ever met or did a show together. That was the look that I worked because I just love you as the evil queen. It's so great. Yeah, you had that animatronic pick. I don't. I still don't know how you did that, and maybe I shouldn't because <laughs> I don't. I don't want any illusions to be shattered. Right. But yes, that animatronic Peggy Gravel on the stage that night blew my mind. <laughs> yes, we went all out. Yes, it was wonderful. And, and let's talk a little bit about these kind of moments because when you're making a movie like this in the fast-paced world of DIY film and indie, independent film you probably weren't thinking of the longevity. Did you ever suspect that, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later, you'd still be talking about Connie Marble, Peggy Gravel. What, what's that like to just step back and, and consider? I'm glad I didn't know. I would have been insufferable <laughs> had I known. Right. I, truly, truly. The... I, I mean, I was shocked that they made it to a theater at all, that anybody came ever. You know, I mean, if this was something, well, actually, by the time we got to Desperate Living, I kind of expected people to come because there had already been Pink Flamingos. But, you know, I mean, this was, no, I had no, no way of knowing. Um, John Waters was the one with the ambition. You know, I was along for the ride. I had a great time. I loved doing it. But as far as my, I never had any perception that, you know, three days later, anybody would care. You know, movies come and go. Right. 
well, and very, but very few as uh, you know, as we talk about on this podcast, very few of the films that get the biggest reception or, or huge awards. If you really look at the, the even the best picture winners, with the, with the exception of some movies like silence of the lambs here and there, very few of them are beloved in a way where people get tattoos of the characters, where people make their own merchandise. And certainly for you, you haven't been in one of those movies. You've been in over a dozen of them. You know, most actors don't get one film like that, you know. I've been very lucky. Yeah, it's really I've cool. I've been very, very lucky. And, you know, I was lucky, but I also did my job. Right. Well, you're good. I mean, yeah. that, that. I mean, the, the other thing is, and this pisses me off when, uh, and we, don't, we, you and I don't really talk about this very often, but when, when John's films uh, are referenced and they refer to the acting as bad, you know, and, and 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 to me, it's very offensive because it's like, oh no, 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 bad acting isn't memorable. Bad right. acting isn't, you know, um, imitated. Bad acting doesn't, you know, inspire people to dress up as the characters and, you know, <laughs> and and live out the. It's like that. You cannot call. You can call it a lot of things. It might be extreme or over the top or a, a unique style, but it was intentional and it's good. Yeah. My beef was always when people would call us unprofessional. When they would mm. call us amateur. Well, they wouldn't say unprofessional. They'd say amateurs, <laughs> because I just thought, okay, yes, we're not union. However, we show up on time. We know our lines. We hit our marks. We do our jobs. We do not fuck up. We're not drinking, smoking, taking drugs on the set. We're not pulling diva fits. We are there. We are working. We are ready to go. And we do our jobs. And like you said, we did them well. Yeah. So I, I would find it very offensive when I was being called an amateur. It is offensive. And I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad that you say that because I think a lot of people, especially... In in the universe, there's this sort of snobbery that pisses me off. Where now everyone, you know, they do they did it with early on Moldavar. You know, they do it with a lot of the great filmmakers. You know, it's very dismissive. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh no, you're wonderful. Let's play your yes, movies exactly. at Lincoln Center, and you know, right. <laughs> there, there is <laughs> and this that sort happened of, to us. <laughs> yeah, it definitely <laughs> happened. Yeah. yeah, but I think that's you know one of the common threads of of this whole discussion series that we're doing with the podcast is how if these movies had been embraced by that mainstream immediately rather than the people who got it, the lives would have been different. I think that, you know, the people who found it right away and got what you were doing, they always knew. And then it took everybody else to catch up. And it's like, you know, by the time they caught up, fuck them. Who cares? Like we, you found yeah. the people. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, it was, you know, I mean, and I, of course, like I said, I never knew what was going to happen. And, and people, you know, come to me and they say, oh, you, you know, they recite my lines, lines that I long ago forgot. I, like I said, I have this book with my reference. I wish I had scripts to all of those. But I find that to be, it's kind of overwhelming. It's, it's incredibly gratifying. It strokes my ego to a, to a state that is, you know, really polished. Right. But it's, you know, I glow from it. But at the same time, it's very humbling because I didn't do it for that. Yeah. You know? and I, I mean, I didn't do it with that expectation. I'm happy it happened, but I didn't do it with that expectation. Right. And I would like to ask about that because uh, back when we met, I remember uh, when we were all on the road with Peach's movie, All About Evil, you and I had 
a number of occasions to sit and talk. And I remember you were telling me uh, about how, because you did your job and because a lot of these characters began with hysteria and you're, you're known for these kind of larger than life cult personas, oftentimes people come to you reciting the lines, but also have this assumption that you are this more uh, outrageous person than you, you believe yourself to be or whatever. And, and I'm interested in that kind of interaction because that's a whole different engagement than just people loving your movies years later. It is because people think that I am Kathy Davenport or that <laughs> I am Peggy Gravel. I do a lot of cameos, you know, the, the online video thing cameo. Well, we and should say if you, if you want to make still cameo, you go to the cameo app and you can book her for a personal video message. Yes. But what, I, but the point being, yes, please book me. I love it. But <laughs> the point being that people want me to be on these cameos. They generally want me to be my very worst self. Mm-hmm. They want the nastiest lines I've ever said. You know, every now and then somebody does, you know, people don't always ask for that, but it's like, can you insult my friend? Can you call my friend an asshole? Can you, can you? Oh my God. Can you, can you, know, so can you give them a Peggy ramp? And it's like, oh, I can, and I do, but <laughs> I, you know, but that is not who I am. I am not that person. I believe me in my life, there have been moments when Peggy has come full blown right out of my mouth, but that's not my normal persona. I'm actually kind of nice. Well, I mean, I think you're you're so lovely, and you know, I, I think people uh, having been with you more than once, especially in fan <laughs> fan settings, where there is this, and, and John Waters gets this as well. Um, where it's almost like people feel the need to sort of prove themselves by trying to shock you. And I I always want to, it's so, so if you're listening, let me give you some advice. If you, (laughs) if you see Mink Stoll or John Waters in public, there is no need to go up and talk about poop or uh, (laughs) your, your, your period or whatever you think might impress them. They cannot be shocked and they won't be impressed. So just go be normal and say hello and, and tell them you're a fan. You know, that it, it goes a, lo- a longer way. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't care what people say. I'm so thrilled that people care. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm still really overwhelmed by it. I think it's wonderful that, what, what did we say, 40 some years later, people, you're, we're still talking about this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And you can still see it. Yeah, it's like uh, it's uh, this movie is and I are almost the same age. Well, no, this movie's a little bit younger. Thank you, Peaches. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sweetheart. Um, I wanted to ask about some of the other cast members, but specifically one in particular who I've gotten to meet through you, uh, who's a friend of yours. Um, because I think Sue Lowe's performance in this movie is so extraordinary. And so for those of you who don't know, Sue plays Mole McHenry. And when you meet Sue in, in, in you know, real life, uh, Sue is absolutely nothing, nothing like Mole. And so it just goes back to that sort of idea of professionalism. It's like, talk about a total transformation. And so were you and Sue friends before, because this was, oh no, this yes. wasn't Sue's first movie. This with, wasn't her first the, she movie. She did no. Female Trouble. She was in Female Trouble. She's in uh, Multiple Maniacs. Oh, right. Yeah, she's in Multiple Maniacs. And, and no, Sue's been around for a long time. I don't remember ever not knowing 
Susan Lowe. I mean, okay. I probably met her when I was 18 or 19, but I don't, we used to get so grumped together and pick up sailors in the waterfront. <laughs> and get, you know, she could tell you stories that I've forgotten and she would probably tell them better because she'll lie about them. But, <laughs> but, oh, uh, but no, I, I actually saw Susan not that long ago when I was in Baltimore. I was in Baltimore in June. And oh. she uh, and I, I had dinner with her and, you know, she's she's an artist. She's a, a painter and, um, you know, she a sculptor. You know, she works with clay and she is always making amazing things. Always. Yeah. You know, I, I, I have don't think she's doing any acting right now, but, you know, she's a very intensely creative woman. Well, she's incredible in Desperate Living. And the, the whole cast is great. I mean, obviously there's Edith Massey as Queen Carlotta, which is just delicious, of course. Yes. And then, um, you know, another friend of yours who, who's in um, all of those early movies, Mary Vivian Pierce as Princess yes. Cuckoo. And which Fantastic. I think is her absolute best role. Mm-hmm. I do. There's just something about... Uh, her sitting on a bed in a dress the size of Texas. She's got this <laughs> enormous hoop skirt on and a powder puff that's the size of Austin, Texas. And she's powdering her nose, crying because she cannot be with her with her um, garbage man boyfriend. You know, I mean, she's, <laughs> yeah. she is, she's hilarious. She yeah. is hilarious. And I think she's just amazing in this movie. I really do. I, I think she looks beautiful and it's just, she's just, yeah, I think it's her best role. Yeah. Well, speaking of characters that, that make this world, I, I think when we think about cult films, sometimes we overlook the fact that they bring us into a world and that world itself is a character, you know, the castle in Rocky Horror, Camp Crystal Lake, uh, and when you look at Desperate Living, when you get out of this, the city, or as I said at the beginning, the suburbs, and we get to Mortville, that's the world that wraps us into this movie. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that set and that yes. shooting environment, because one, it looked really cold just watching the movie. It uh, was. And two, it, it's, it's a complete construction uh, out of John Waters' mind. So just tell me about working in Mortville. I'm curious. Well, yes, it was cold. Uh, it was built on the property of a friend of ours uh, out in the country. And it was plywood and all doors. And, you know, I mean, it was really, it was built out of garbage. I think, I think the, the castle was built out of plywood. I, I didn't, I wasn't there. I was there for part of the teardown, but I wasn't there for the building. And... Those of us, the principal characters, got to hang out in the farmhouse, you know, mm. in the actual home, what well, between takes. But everybody else had to be outside. And, you know, when you see the shots of the smudge pots, you know, the people standing by trash cans, they really were standing by trash cans trying to keep warm, <laughs> you know, the fires in the trash cans. Uh, there had been some kind of a bus. I can't remember if it was a school. I think it was a school bus that had brought people in to be extras. But a lot of the extras, you know, people who drove themselves, they left. They were they were freezing, you know, and there was no food. You know, I mean, it was it was kind of a um, I would say the biggest Mortville days could have been handled a little bit better Mm. as far as, you know, the company 
the, you know, the actors and the company were, were uh, but it was again, a budget issue. Right. And, you know, you say, do you want to be in a movie? You know, you just tell your friends, come on out and be in this movie. And everybody says, yes. Not realizing that being in a movie is really boring. Right. <laughs> you know? And and to be clear, I looked this up before we did our interview. The budget for Desperate Living was $65,000. Yes. <laughs> Which is so, so wild. It's, yes. just, it's a nothing budget to yeah. build, uh, to build a, a castle. Yeah. To, to build a town. Yeah, a castle and a town. I was, some, of, some of the sets, the interior of the castle was a loft in the waterfront neighborhood, in Fells Point, in the waterfront neighborhood. That was... Mm. We had a sort of a sound stage for that, but everything else, all the scenes of, and I think I'm trying to remember, oh my God, my mind is a complete blank now where we actually filmed the Mole's house. I know the bedroom where um, Griselda and I slept, that was on the set, that was at Northville. Uh, but I can't remember, I can't remember if the if their sort of living room set was there as well. I think it was. So yes, it was cold. It was cold. <laughs> well, it was winter. Since um, you bring up the Griselda um, bedroom sleeping arrangements, of course, one of the most memorable scenes is uh, your love scene uh, with Jean Hill. And so I have yes. to ask, you know, I think I know you and I have talked about it before, but you know, this is Jean's first John Waters film. Yes, uh, like you know. She definitely um, is kind of a fish out of water, probably on screen and off. So how how was she, how was it? She was game. Uh-huh. She was totally game. I mean, you consider she is a person who has never didn't know any of us, and there she is walking around in a tutu. Yeah, you know, in a in a ballerina's tutu. That I mean, she looked ludicrous. The um, and she was she had. She never blew her lines. She was as professional as the rest of us. She was really good. The only time she had any qualms, there's a moment when uh, we have been, we're in a paddy wagon. And I guess we're being taken to the queen. My, my, I'm not remembering everything completely well, but we were being taken, we're in a paddy wagon. And we were supposed to kiss. And she looked at me, she goes, I can't kiss you. And I looked back at her, I said, I said, gee, your lips are bigger than my head. You can kiss me. <laughs> you know, but that, that, she had a bit of a qualm about that. Pretending to have me go, you know, my pretending to go down on her didn't bother her at all. <laughs> <laughs> but she drew yeah. the line. Well, a lot of people do draw the line at kissing. It's so, true. You know, yes, yeah. <laughs> mount me if you must, but please, not a kiss. <laughs> But I, I liked what you said about her showing up and being game, because I think when you make a movie like this or you show up to a midnight theater event with drag queens who are portraying you, you don't arrive with reservations. You have to show up and be game. You have to be game because otherwise you're not going to do your job. You know, you, you can't do your job if you don't want to. Right. You know, if you're there and you don't want to be there and you don't want to be doing what you're doing, it's not going to work. So, yeah. But no, she was completely game. She was great. So speaking of um, being game, the the other actor I really wanted to ask you about is Liz Renee, because, of course, Liz actually was sort of a, a known uh, persona and had done other movies. So how, how was it? 
with her coming to the set? Like, and, and was she game? Also completely game. The oh. only thing that was weird about working with Liz, I liked Liz a lot. She was very, she was fun. The only thing that was weird about her is she had to be taken to the bathroom because she had these fingernails and she had to be undressed and redressed because she couldn't <laughs> lose her nails. And that was my job one time. So, <laughs> oh, that's, but, that's, a, that's a good bit of trivia. So you helped Liz Renee get undressed, use the toilet. Well, just, oh, I think she was only wearing panties. I don't think she, you know, she, um, didn't, she wasn't dressed. Right, right, right. Know, very big. You know, she was. She was scantily dressed to begin right. with. But yeah, I, I helped her with that. But that was just, you know, but we didn't have dressing rooms back then. We didn't have trailers. We didn't have places to go to hang out. And, you know, we were, like I said, the principals like, got to be at the house. But, yeah. you know, so we had, I don't even remember what they must have had porta potties. I don't remember. They, they must have had them. I didn't use one, but they must have had them. <laughs> you know, this is when you're making people call it what uh, kamikaze filmmaking, or which I don't think is really. We had permission to be there. I wasn't really kamikaze, but it was when you're, you know, working with no money, you do what you have to do. Yeah, yeah. But yo, Liz was game. Liz was great. I mean, she had really good lines. Yeah. Know, I'll lick it, I'll suck it, just like always. You know, I mean, she had to say <laughs> some pretty strange things. And plus the idea, you know, she was um, she was the mother who, you know, whose baby was in the refrigerator. Yeah. So she had to, you know, she did all, and I wasn't there for that, for that day of filming, but, uh, you know, she was great. Now, one of the things that Peaches and I have been doing on Midnight Mass, in addition to celebrating these movies, is we've really been delving into the cult that has kept them alive. And, of course, we talked a little bit about some of the outrageous things people expect or say to you, or just even the longevity of the movie. But what's interesting about Desperate Living and some of the other characters you played is you you hear your voice sampled in songs. You're having people get uh, tattoos of your face. And uh, as the years have go- gone on, and I'm sure there are a few, what's the most outrageous or unexpected place you have been hit with your own moment of, of your, your own work? You know, I don't know. I, I do know that Marilyn Manson sampled something that I, something that I did probably from Desperate Living, but I don't remember. I actually never heard it. I just heard about it. Um, I was doing a show in New Orleans a few years ago and you know, there's, I always talk to the audience and people said, you know, can, can we show you something? And they came up and they had big pictures of me, both of them. You know, I, I think it was Connie Marble tattooed on their thighs. <laughs> I signed a man's butt once and he had that tattooed. Uh, I mean, I, I find that to be, I mean, I'm game for it. Sure. I'll, I'll, you want my tat? you want my tattoo? You can have it. It's fine. I have personally none, right. but, um, I think all three of us are blanks, as Mike would blanks? say. Yeah. 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 All, yeah, Yay, that's a, a, yeah, that's unusual. We are tattoo free. In in our world. Yeah. We yeah. are, we are, yes, unusual. Yeah. Although in my, you know, with my friends, I have many friends that don't have tats. But anyway, but but in our in our countercultural world, we are yeah. different. We have to stand out somehow. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> 
So when this movie did finally come out in 1977, uh, in May, do you remember uh, going to a premiere? Do you remember what the response was? Do you remember what your friends and family thought? You know, all of that, like the general reception. No, okay. I have absolutely no recollection of it. I was, I honestly don't, I, let's see, we did and then we did Female Trouble. Female Trouble, I remember. Desperate Living, I honestly don't remember. Uh, Total blank. Well, that's, you know. I, I really don't. I, uh, you know, I'm going to see John Waters in a couple of weeks. I'll ask him about it because I, I truly don't remember. I think uh, a lot of people didn't like it. You know, it's uglier than... Um, even Pink Flamingos. Pink Flamingos is darker in some ways, but it's lighter and sort of, it's a little bit on the fluffier side in some mm -hmm. ways. Right. And even um, Female Trouble is funnier, lighter mm -hmm. and funnier. Desperate Living is, is dark. You know, there's a lot of really dark stuff that goes on. Uh, so I, the, the reception, I don't remember. I think it was a little harder for people to swallow. It's an interesting thing being um, one of the hardcore, you know, fans of these movies uh, to realize that for the fan culture uh, of the, the Dreamland universe, you know, which really are John's earlier films, um, Desperate Living is a lot of people's favorites. And I think Partly it is because it, it's a little more hardcore. It's a little more relentless as far as the sort of gross out stuff and the political incorrectness and the darkness. And it's also got a quality to it that's sort of surreal and artsy where it's like, what is Mortville? It's kind of like John's version of a fairy tale or the Wizard of Oz or something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very bent and twisted and distorted. <laughs> Through yeah. a prism of shards or something. I, the, um, I do know, uh, I, nobody has ever talked to me about this. No lesbian has ever confronted me with how anti-lesbian or anti-trans desperate living is. But I have heard that there are people who think that it's very anti-trans mm. um, because, you know, the, the mole character gets a sex change and it's, and then rejects it, is rejected for having it and then rejects it herself. I wow. just think it, it's it's so gross how anybody that, you know, she cuts off this fake penis and a dog eats it. I don't see how anybody could take that even for one minute as a serious statement on transgender. Well, you know, it, yeah, I, apparently I, some people do. I think, I think, so if you're if you're uh, looking for offensive um, trans representations, sure, yes, you're right. Yeah. Is it offensive? Yeah. Yes, but it's like it's intentionally offensive for an audience who's in on the joke, right? Like these movies were made for the freaks of their era, for the midnight movie crowd. So, right. you know, um, trans people were going to see these films, right? Trans people are in these films. You know, Elizabeth right. is in Pink Flamingos, 
you know, and she's a trans and woman female trouble. and female trouble. She's, yes. a, you know, trans woman who's working in this world. Right. So yes. I feel like it's this easy thing now to kind of point the finger back, like, Oh, look at this. It's offensive. I'm offended. It's like, you're, there's, you're, you're not getting it. You don't get it. it and wasn't, things get you know, taken out of time and context. And yeah. it's, uh, so, but, but no one has ever confronted me about it. And of course in, in the movie, I, you know, I, I'm a lesbian, you know, I'm yeah. so, I, and apparently quite happy to be one. <laughs> so. And I think it's interesting too, because it's, as Peaches says, it, you really have to meet the film through the lens of which is presented to you. The, yes. and, and one of those things, from the moment we meet Peggy Gravel, though we may as an audience love her, no one is under any illusion that she is a nice person. Or, and, and so when you enter the film with this sort of hysterical uh, sort of rage, and then right. you go from there, you're kind of on this punk rock wild trip to John Waters' Oz. And through yes. that, it's going to be a little deranged and a little strange. And... Uh, I think that if you're coming at this movie with the hope of like a, a, a firm look at reality, <laughs> uh, perhaps you have wandered into the wrong screen. The wrong, right? yeah, the screen, yeah. exactly. You're in the wrong place. I mean, and you know, they could say that we're making fun of uh, disabled people. I mean, Cookie, Cookie Mueller mm -hmm. uh, plays Flipper, a dancer. Yeah. She's a lesbian dancer. And she also, but she has, you know, her, uh, an arm, you know, she has half an arm. Yeah. And in yeah. real in real life, she had arms. Now, why weren't you using a real disabled person? Well, we didn't know one. So, you know, and in a universe where you're working with your friends, you know, you, you work with what you've got. And it was, it was a queer universe. That's the other thing that I think people miss the point. Like here's a filmmaker and his friends making a movie, but it's not like they're, you know, not in a queer world or that they're not, you know, living in this world. So, you know, if you look at, I love that Queen Carlotta's army are, you know, a bunch of leather men, you know, from, right. from, from the gay bar down the street. Like, it's hilarious. I love the moment where Mink, you're in the bathroom stall and then there's like the glory hole for the tits because it's yes. like, it's like, so it's, 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 it's making fun of gay men more than lesbians. It's hilarious. It, it's, it was, it's queer, you know. It's queer. It's an, yeah. it's an, it's actually a really, if you notice um, the thing about the flipper, the Cookie Mueller, nobody talks about it. She just happens to have. Right, right. You know, this arm. There, you know, um, I just happen to have a leg brace, which, you know, we don't talk about the, um, <laughs> you know, but, but all, everybody is except everybody in Mortville is allowed to be who they are. I mean, right. the, you know, Queen Carlotta's army will beat everybody up, but, you know, but as far as the, the, the residents of the town, there's no judgments made by the residents of the residents. Right, right. And I, and I think that's what kind of makes, as we have alluded to, it, 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 this sort of punk rock version of Oz, because amongst the people there, what would be considered transgressive isn't. It's accepted. And what I think is really interesting, especially following this movie with polyester, which, of course, I won't talk about too much because we could do a whole episode just on that, 
is 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 a really it's a smart move because when you look at the world of desperate living which is very gritty and leans into the transgressive into the subversive this sort of punk rock world of outsiders and then to flip the script and go into the home into this Douglas Sirk kind of Elizabeth yes. Taylor fantasy and when you look behind closed doors and realize you can find transgressive things there too it's yes. a brilliant double because it shows if you are looking to find the subversive, you will always find it, depending on what your point of view is. Open any door. Yeah, right. Yeah. Pretty much. You know, every, every, everybody's got something they don't want other people to know about. Yes, but yes, darkness lurks behind lots of doors. And I think the, the uh, fact that Peggy goes on this journey and actually finds her voice through evil is, is really fabulous, right? Like yes. she's so, she's so, she cannot do the normal mother housewife suburban thing. It's driving her mad, right? Yes. Like she has a mental break, but she, she pulls her shit together when she realizes she can be an evil queen who gives people rabies. Like she's <laughs> in control. She's no longer yelling. No, right. She's, no. She stops yelling. Yeah. Peggy, Peggy finds peace. Yes. With 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 Queen Carlotta. Yeah. She she is no longer yelling. Yeah. And there is a she has a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love mean, she's that. a coward. She's a coward underneath it all. You know, I mean, it's yeah. but but there is but she does have this moment where she realizes the role for which she has been born, which <laughs> is to be the evil princess. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, it's she's very happy as the evil princess. And then sadly, of course, like all good things must come to an end. She's <laughs> shot up the anus with a gun. Yes. That, that is her. That is how she is executed. But if you're yeah, going to go. My line, nothing can destroy the beauty of fascism. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like when I think about what's going on in the world today, I cringe. For yeah. sure. But who yeah. knew? Who knew it was prophetic? Oh, very. Uh, right. But it, it proved that even, uh, even, even evil people have to find their chosen family. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you just a little bit, a moment of that. Um, I knew I was getting shot. I mean, that was in the script. I knew all of that. And I fall across the turkey. I think it's, a, I fall across the turkey and I think, you know, okay, we're done. John yells cut and he says, stay still, stay still. I'll be right back. And, he, and then he comes back and I feel something on my butt, on my bare butt. And he has applied a piece of raw liver to my bare butt. <laughs> oh my God. For the shot. Oh no. <laughs> you know, I mean, when I think about the terrible thing is that Divine had to endure, I got a flight. You know, I right. got off really, really lightly, but but that was a that was a definitely a a what the fuck moment. And yeah. then I thought it, and then it was funny. Yeah, you had no idea this liver was coming until the moment. I didn't know. I didn't yeah. know. All in the day's work. That's <laughs> like you know, but you're a pro. You run with it. Exactly. Well, we cannot thank you enough for coming and talking to us about Desperate Living. 
Uh, we love the movie and I love you, Mink. Uh, and, I love you too. And yeah, thank you. I, I miss you. And I know Michael and I, you know, I speak for both of us. We would love to have you back. We want to talk about yes, serial please. mom. We want to talk about female trouble. We don't, you know, so hopefully we won't exhaust you, but this will be one of many. Well, I've enjoyed this enormously. So thank you. And even evil people need to find their chosen family. I'm keeping that. That's a really good line. Thank you good. for that, Michael. Absolutely. So, Take it with you. <laughs> so uh, I've enjoyed it enormously. Thank you very much. Of course. All and, right. And I look forward to hearing this. Yes. Thank you, Mink. Right. Well, that was the fabulous Mink Stoll, uh, who's just so wonderful. And I mean, Michael, I just loved that interview because we got to talk specifically about Desperate Living. And so often when I do a show with Mink, we only get to um, sort of touch on each of the movies she's done. And because she's done so many movies, you know, it, it's like we don't get to do the the deeper dive. And um the trivia that I found fascinating was that that was John's parents' house where they shot the whole Peggy Gravel fiasco at the beginning. I love that. That's very understanding parents, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. to know that your son is going to make a movie where a woman is going to go unhinged and scream at children and break some vases uh, and then commit it to film forever. You just have to trust your child's artistic vision. Well, you know, his father ended up uh, loaning him the money to make Pink Flamingos. But the deal was that John, you know, asked them never, ever to see the movie, <laughs> which I love. And and then, you know, I also love that he very proudly paid his father back for the investment uh, years later, you know, when he had the money to pay him back. So I think, uh, I don't know, that's just really sweet. He had really supportive parents, but they didn't quite... Um, you know, need need to embrace what he was doing. They just had to support it, you know. It does beg the question if they've seen any of his movies or they have. Oh, good. I think they actually have seen most of them, but Pink Flamingos was the one that he asked them not to see. And of course, they, they both passed away, but he's written about that, you know. Um, and, and, and actually, there's really beautiful shots of them at different premieres in Baltimore at the Senator Theater, so you can Google that. Um, but the thing that I had thought of before we went into the Mink interview was that concept of of Mortville as sort of Oz and how ironically San Francisco in many ways has represented that for for a lot of people, for queer people, for hippies, for, you know, beatniks, for bohemians. Um, And John, some of you may not know this, but he has a a place in San Francisco and John was here the last couple weeks. So we actually um, hung out a little bit. We went to lunch and and did some stuff. Um, But I invited him. I didn't even tell you this, Michael. I don't think. But I invited him to come see Terror Vault, my haunted attraction at the Mint, which opens this fall. TerrorVault.com for any of you listening in the Bay Area. And John came and the Mint is located at Fifth and Market. And the walk in San Francisco right now um, to get there is like through the Tenderloin, 
through through Union Square, you know, crossing Market Street, crossing Mint Plaza. Let me just say it's not, you know, it's a little like Skid Row these days in San Francisco. And uh, so I actually brought up Mortville to John. I said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. This is so Mortville. And he looked at me and he goes, this whole city is Mortville. <laughs> yeah. And I'm That's... like, yeah, I guess it is. In more ways than one, it really it, it, it is. I mean, you know, uh, and for those of you who have visited the city in the last, you know, especially the last five years, you know, uh, there's a lot of magic here. You know, there there is still a fairy tale side to it. And there's a lot of grime and grit and, you know, vile uh, shit happening. Literally shit happening on the streets. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, that was the story I w- wanted to share. That's a good one, though. And you were, you were saying you had a, you had a story about that you, you remembered something um, when we were on the road with Mink. Yeah. You, you didn't know, tell me what it was. Well, one of the the fun things about going on the road with All About Evil is we got to go to all of these cities that we normally would probably not get to spend a lot of time in. And I remember that we were very committed to trying a lot of the local delicacies, like, you know, different foods. You know, while we were in Atlanta, we went to get authentic chicken and waffles and we made sure to get deep dish in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And during a lot of this adventure, Mink quite smartly did not always participate in our food adventures and... I think that like the waistline <laughs> that I came away from uh, spoke to the reason why. But I remember uh-huh. when we were in Milwaukee, and I don't know if you remember this, she was extremely lit up that we had to go and get a Schlitz beer because it was the beer of <laughs> Milwaukee. She remembered the commercials from when she was younger, and she was like, if we do anything while we're here, we have to go and find Schlitz. And we ended up going to like three or four different breweries, which is funny because you don't drink. And right. all of the places- And I don't really remember this, but yeah, and- I- I'm sure it happened. It yeah. did. And all of the places were like really fancy, and they were just like, had all these like upscale beers, and Mink was like, no. I need this Schlitz. We did eventually <laughs> find it. But I remember she. we did. We had like this odyssey through like uh, downtown Milwaukee trying to find a can of Schlitz beer for her. That is hilarious. It's funny that you, of course, I don't remember the beer adventure at all because I don't drink. But I, I, as soon as you said um, chicken and waffles, I was like, oh, my God, that's right. We went to Gladys Knight's restaurant. We in, sure did. In, in Atlanta. And then it was Fabulous. Um, yeah, we were pretty decadent. I mean, I don't even think I fit. I think my costumes had to be let out on that tour. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of letting costumes out. You think that's funny? I, I do. My my struggles. <laughs> speaking of letting costumes out, our next guest is a accomplished costumer and wardrobe designer, as well as one of the most committed, in many ways, fans of not just John Waters, but Desperate Living, uh, to the point that he created a drag night named after Desperate Living. Am I correct on that, Peaches? Yeah, and it wasn't actually limited to drag. It, what was really cool about Desperate Living, his his nightlife event, was that it was more of a, of a true punk club. It, it had live music, so they had bands play week after week. Sometimes the bands did incorporate drag and they did have drag numbers, but I really liked, you know, the fact that it was a it was a live music event. Here to join us now is this amazing creator and super fan of Desperate Living, Seth Schubin. All right, here we are with 
Seth Shubin, AKA Veruca Bath Salts, someone I've known now many, many years. And you know, when thinking about uh, the perfect obsessed fan to bring on and discuss desperate living specifically, uh, Seth popped up to the top of my list. However, I will say this, I do know a lot of obsessed fans of John Waters. So uh, this, you know, this is a big pool that Seth has risen to the top of. And, you know, we're gonna get into the nitty gritty of it. Uh, and I will introduce him right now. Without further ado, let's welcome Seth to the show. Hi, Seth. Hello. It's an honor to be nominated as the filthiest fan alive. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Now, uh, I'll just jump right in and say that you maybe have my favorite sleeve of John Waters tattoos of anyone. And, and, and as you know, well know, there are many, many John Waters inspired tattoos. Could you please first just describe how you have branded yourself, literally cattle prodded, ink into your body uh, that, that celebrates the Dreamlanders. Give the, the home audience a, a, a visual. Yeah, so my early 20s, I, you know, I had all this empty space and prime real estate, and I decided to start with a big portrait of Divine, which then went into Aunt Ida and Connie Marble, and then... Princess Cuckoo from Disparate Living and Concetta and Chiclet. And the best one of all is a portrait of John that I got at a Baltimore tattoo convention that says Filthy Boy on my back. <laughs> and yeah, it just kept going and going. And that's how you and I met. Well, Seth, why don't you take us back a little bit before, before the tattoos, when you had all that empty real estate and you first discovered... John Waters, how did how did you come to the, the cinematic world of John Waters, and how did you know this was it, this was for you? Well, like many, um, you know, I'm in my mid-30s, so I think like many, my first, first, first John Waters film was Hairspray. Um, I think I was in middle school, and I remember I was at like a school function or something, but the number one thing I remember about this was the character running around as the beatnik just saying, let's smoke reefer and get naked. And I was like, oh, this kind of weird stuff is right up my alley. And then I'd say probably later in high school is when I started finding the real John Waters non-family-friendly films, um, like Pink Flamingo. I mean, everybody's first real experience is usually Pink Flamingos. And then it opened the floodgates for me um, of just being completely obsessed with these acid head freaks from the 70s that you know showcased everything about <laughs> weird queer culture that i as a creative weirdo was in love with yeah that uh is definitely what i like to call the the john waters immersion phase of people's lives because i think you're right hairspray uh and anything post hairspray like um serial mom crybaby uh you know it, 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 Anything hairspray or after, you know, I think can be considered a gateway drug to the world of John Waters. And so what's great is they had bigger distribution. They're, um, they're played on television more. And if you uh, pick up on that kernel of, of subversive 
trash that, you know, John, uh, you know, has in all of his films. You know, it's transgressive. It's mocking mainstream society. And it really speaks to you. You will inevitably be led to Pink Flamingos and, you know, Female Trouble. And those films are going to blow your fucking mind out of the water. And you will then consume everything you can. You will read every book you can. You will watch those movies repeatedly. So that's your John Waters immersion period. I know it well. We we all have it. And uh, let's get into specifically Desperate Living because I think that we all can agree that Divine is a huge part of our attraction and our love of those films, the Dreamlander films. But this is a film without Divine. You know, Mink, Mink Stoll steps up and takes the lead uh, as Peggy Gravel. Um, and we do have our, our favorite Dreamlanders. What is it specifically about um, Desperate Living that you love so much? Because I know you love Desperate Living. We're going we're gonna to get to how it's influenced some of the things you did later in life in a moment. Yeah, you know, uh, the thing about Desperate Living, like you said, you know, it's always a shocker because it's almost like the Halloween 3 of John Waters' films because Divine wasn't in it. You know, it's just that one film in the middle of everything going on <laughs> that she wasn't in. Um, but I think just the absurdity of this entire different town that's just literally built out of trash and, uh, you know, these outlaws that have been shunned away from society, hiding in the woods, and their queen is a disgusting, revolting, heavyset woman um, with just a bunch of slutty leather dudes who take care of her every wish. Um, I don't know. It's relatable, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, would you want to live in Mortville? Absolutely. Um, you know, the fashion was... And also, you know, just being around a bunch of dykes, you know, I was raised by dykes. So, um, you know, all the queer women and uh, there's also another really awesome thing. And I'm sure we'll talk about it. But like, you know, this is one of the first times in cinematic history that like trans characters were being seen and depicted. Um, yeah, just the diversity of it, the wildness that I really, you know, as somebody I know we all is cult film obsessors um women in power is always a wonderful thing to see and there's such a strong female well it's all females you know in desperate living they're all ruling the movie they're all the main characters they all have the power um and on top of women being in power the more disgusting they are the more appealing it is to me <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's definitely what drew me in about it. Well, you mentioned that you would want to live in Mortville. And one of the things that I think is is a draw of Desperate Living, and one of the things we talked about with Minx, is that, you know, when you look at Pink Flamingos or Female Trouble, of course they all exist in this John Waters universe. But those characters, Don Davenport, Connie Marble, they still exist in suburbia, in our, in, in our neighborhood. And they're the transgressive element of the world at large. Whereas when Peggy Gravel escapes at the beginning of Desperate Living, she goes to this place that the whole place is a transgressive element. And uh, I think that in a way, it's sort of like John Waters' version of Oz, right? You know, this place, like the place that you can escape to where everything's subversive and in that way then really is anything subversive. And that's kind of challenging in of itself. Uh, one of the things that I love about Mortville specifically, though, is it's just a style unto itself. I know that you work a lot in wardrobe, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about 
in this movie specifically, but in a greater sense, John Waters has this ability to affect a style in in clothes and in aesthetic that is all his own that is kind of hard to put a, a pin on, but when you know it, you see it. And because this is kind of a world that you live in, maybe you could you could help us understand what that is. Yeah, um, you know, many of John and Peaches, you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong, but Van Smith, I believe, was the makeup and wardrobe designer for all of John's films. And, you know, he created the look of Divine, um, but I don't know, just such a creative, weird genius. Um, you know, the whole idea of the movie with like the backwards day and just everything was just supposed to be so absurd and what you wouldn't expect. Um, and so inspirational. Like that movie, if you really look at it, is so absurdly colorful. Like there is no specific color scheme going on. Just everything is as bright from the walls to the furniture to the costumes. Um such an inspiration to just be as wild and wacky as you could. Um, and that's something that, you know, I think living in San Francisco for so many years is such a relatable thing because, you know, San Francisco's drag is known for being so much different than every other city. Um, but, you know, like Griselda's iconic green ballerina tutu outfit with the sequins and the big tool um you know something that you wouldn't expect a 400 pound woman to be wearing but it just her attitude and everything about it you know it all just meshed so well together and the iconic iconic uh flashback outfit for muffy no uh mole there we go yeah, the iconic flashback of their pre-Mortville days, what caused them to have to run away to Mortville, when they were a pro wrestler as a female character with this lovely leopard print unitard with a disgustingly ravaging vagina with teeth. Um, I don't know, maybe it didn't have teeth, but it was just very <laughs> over-the-top, huge vagina that took up most of the outfit, and yeah, she was asserting her power as a woman and beat the shit out of some guy and killed him and then had to run away to Morville. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are some <laughs> of the costumes that are great. I mean, like to come into Mortville, you had to have an ugly makeover just to fit into the town. And that's such a wonderful idea of completely reversing the beauty standards of fashion and, you know, everything like that. Yeah, I think, uh, for one, you're co you are correct. Uh, Van Smith did create all of those looks and all of those costumes. And we should also credit Vince Peranio, who was the production designer for all of those early films. And actually, both of them continued to be, uh, you know, uh, a team, you know, with production design and costuming uh, for all of John's films, all the way up until Van passed away. And Van Smith completely deserves um, so much credit, you know, uh, because he created this look, he created this style that has now been knocked off by fashion designers and, you know, uh, drag queens and, you know, just everyone around the world. Van, Van Smith is incredible. And Vince Peranio, who built all of those sets and took, you know, you know, $10 and made it look like thousands of dollars, uh, Vince, I actually now know because Vince is always at John's annual Christmas party, which um, 
I am fortunate enough to be invited to every year. And so I go to the Christmas party every year and Vince and his wife are always there. And it's so surreal to me to feel like, you know, I'm just like schmoozing with the guy who designed and built Mortville, you know, but like they all worked in beautiful, perfect harmony. When you look at those films, you look at the sets and how they're integrated into what Divine is wearing in Female Trouble, or like you say, Griselda's costume, how it fits into this sort of bizarre, royal trash landscape. Um, you're correct. Okay, so Seth, I wanna talk about the fact that, you know, not only did you um, eventually move to San Francisco from Pennsylvania, you made your way out here, but you uh, got involved with, you know, working with me, um, <laughs> but you also did some of your own stuff uh, that, you know, uh, especially this event that I really had nothing to do with, but just supported from afar because I'm a homebody and never go out, but you created a nightlife event called Desperate Living. And I'm assuming it was partly inspired by the film. Can you tell us about that? Just a little bit of inspiration. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, when, you know, I've been doing nightlife since I was in my early 20s and, you know, moving to San Francisco, I had always idolized and looked up to, you know, all the events that you and your cohorts were doing in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, and, you know, I wasn't seeing, San Francisco is such a colorful city, but, you know, when I moved there in 2013, you know, I wasn't seeing things that specifically catered to my very particular niche interests. And, you know, I've always considered myself kind of a more punk rock kind of gal. And, uh, yeah, I my friends and I started this event and we kind of just sat down and were throwing out ideas. And I, my entire youth have always gone to John Waters references for so many things in my life. Like my ultimate dream is to open a bar called Divine Trash. Um, but when we were going through ideas for nightlife, uh, you know, club nights, I just, I started thinking of John's films and I was like, you know, Dust for Living really embodies the whole idea of what I want this event to be. You know, I wanted to see punk rock, absurdity, disgusting go-go's. You know, I wanted live music, rock and roll music mixed with drag and performances. And, you know, I felt like it was only appropriate to have a reference to John's work. And yeah, it just, it was the winning, uh, suggestion you know that we voted on and yeah the name stuck and we did that really fun event for two years at the former stud bar in san francisco and yeah it was uh i feel like it really it it was everything i wanted it to be you know i always specifically wanted to book go-go dancers that weren't your typical white muscular men um you know i wanted people of all different body types and gender and race i just wanted a super inclusive space um and just to let people have fun and be as gross as they want you know we'd set up a tarp on the pool table in the middle of the bar and let people cover themselves in baked beans and you know bananas and hot wax and <laughs> people putting stuff into their faces with needles. And I mean, a lot of shit that probably could have 
gotten the bar in trouble, but um, they're not currently open anymore, so it's okay to talk about these things. With those shenanigans in mind, and that was a party night, you said that a dream of yours one day would be to open a bar called Divine Trash. What would that look like? Like, what what is that every night for you? Like, how how would you curate that space? Well, that one is uh, maybe not as com- or well known to people, but that one would be based on the documentary from 1998 or 99, I believe, um, about John and his films. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, you know, I live in Los Angeles now. Costuming and wardrobe is the career path that I'm really trying to make a full-time thing. But my other dream, if this never works out, is to somehow make enough money to open up a small, super divey uh, bar. And, you know, a lot of it, I would feel like, would embody the idea of Baltimore, and I'm originally from Philadelphia, so it's just a lot different than the West Coast lifestyle. Um, but yeah, I'd want it to be sleazy. I'd want it to be rock and roll. I'd want it to, I want it to be Mortville essentially, just with alcohol. That's <laughs> <laughs> the perfect way to describe it. You know, I'd have one armed, one armed strippers dressed up like chickens dancing on stages. You know. Um, a glory hole for tits in the bathroom, you know, <laughs> it's the perfect way to describe it. Yeah, I love that idea. Of course, uh, selfishly, I'm still holding a resentment uh, toward you because you did move away from San Francisco. So um, for for the listeners, Seth actually moved to San Francisco and uh, over the years worked for Peaches Christ Productions and eventually uh, worked his way up to be being our wardrobe manager. So he was actually in charge of all of my costumes and my storage unit and, you know, was very good at organizing. Well, he was, he was pretty good at uh, organizing it. And occasional <laughs> slip kidding. up happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know. Peaches, I have it on good authority that Seth was just not your wardrobe mistress, but also your drag daughter. <laughs> if you consider that abortion a drag daughter, um, then then so be it. But I did my best to kill it at birth. I mean, it was. I had to crawl th- th- I mean, there's, my there's, way in you know, for that th- there, there are, there are, yeah, there are boogers, and then there is Veruca bath salts. It's in a whole nother uh, uh, category. But no, it, she has now. I guess yes, yes. Uh, despite uh, my best efforts um, to pull it out. Uh, and, and kill it uh, with fire. She is now my drag daughter. Seth, your rebuttal. She eventually became tolerable. <laughs> <laughs> What's well, funny, I, right before we started this, I realized that this month is our one 10-year anniversary of meeting each other. We met in August 2011, so it's a full decade of being in each other's lives. Um, and yeah, I mean, I literally, I always tell people. Remind me, because the thing that I remember, which was so impressive and flattering and so wonderful, was that you, at the time, would uh, fly yourself, you know, as a young queer person to San Francisco to watch a show of mine and then fly yourself back to Philadelphia. And I remember being like, Wow. And I think you might have done that a couple times, right, before you ended up deciding um, to move to San Francisco. And, and you know, I just 
remember being blown away, like really blown away by that. So what was the first show that you came out for? The first one I came out for was Showgirls in 2011, your annual Showgirls show. Ah. And we had, you know, just started chatting through Facebook at that time. And, you know, I had heard of you, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't super, and this was like before Instagram was really big, like the, uh, just knowing everything about everybody in the country wasn't as readily available. Um, so once I found out the type of stuff that you were well-known and acclaimed for, I became obsessed because it was every nerdy little thing that I loved about cinema. Cause I had never seen drag Queens doing anything with movies before. Um, and Showgirls being one of my all-time favorite movies, I was like, I gotta see this. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I mean, I'm the type of person that, you know, if I want something, I go for it. I don't think a lot about it. Um, and yeah, coming to San Francisco, I think it was three different times before I moved there. I mean, God knows I had a lot of credit card debt years later to deal with, but I would just book flights and be like, I need to go experience this. I need to go to a theater filled with 1,400 people screaming and dancing around to my favorite movies. Well, Seth, I have to ask, and I, uh, I'm sure that we'll be explain this when we do our Showgirls episode later, but since your first Midnight Mass experience with Showgirls, did you lap dance? I did, and I love to tell this story because it's pretty <laughs> cute and stupid. Um, my partner at the time and I flew out. Um, you know, Peaches had explained to me, you know, hey, this is how it works. Um, you know, you're, you get an, a ticket automatically if you volunteer to be a lap dancer. And as many people who have experienced this over the 20 years that it happened um, with every large popcorn or any popcorn, you get a free lap dance from the circus of lap dancers that run out into the audience. And um, it was my first time in San Francisco. I hadn't brought a look with, so I went to the Piedmont boutique and got ripped off and spent too much money on <laughs> a silly sequin outfit, but it worked. Um, and as many know, like, probably, like, 75 to 100 people get up on the Castro stage, and Peaches would go down the line as quickly as possible and introduce everybody. And there was me at the very, very end, last person. People are like, I'm Clitty Litter. I'm Vita Hormel. I'm all these creative, disgusting names. And then I just go, <laughs> I'm Seth Schubert. <laughs> I had no drag name at the time. Um... And oh my God. yeah, just very awkwardly, um, you know, this is, I, I learned so much about myself as a performer and a queer person in San Francisco, but I awkwardly ran out into that audience and just got on a stranger's lap and uh, tried to wreak havoc as that was what I was there to do. My ex was really nervous and uncomfortable and he actually ran out into the uh, lobby and hid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> well, and to bring it back to the movie in question, to uh, describe to listeners who never got to experience the full-on lap dance bacchanalia that happens in the Castro Theater, it is literally Mortville on Earth for a few minutes. It's every <laughs> freak, queen, and weirdo, and I say that with absolute love, running rampant, jumping on strangers, throwing popcorn, and other things. 
Yeah. And Peaches just watches it all like a <laughs> wicked queen from the stage. <laughs> I'd never thought of it as Mortville, but I'm basically the Queen Carlotta there. Wow. And I love that we get to kind of bring it full circle. And, you know, there's plenty of YouTube videos. If you are interested in seeing what this is like, you can uh, YouTube search Peaches Christ lap dancers, you know, because we did free, we did free lap dances with every large popcorn at showgirl screenings 20 years in a row <laughs> there is plenty of footage you know the first one i ever did was in 1998 um well i have to say that i could sit and talk with you seth for so much longer and i think what we'll do as we we offer for many of our guests is is extend an invitation to have you back on the midnight mass podcast at a later date you um are a true cult film lover and maybe uh, as much as I tease about not wanting to be your drag mother, I will say this earnestly. Um, I am so glad that you reached out and so glad that you became, you know, not just one of the children of the popcorn, but like really part of my family here in San Francisco. It was very hard to see you leave. I did not want to see you leave, but I'm glad that you're pursuing your uh, passion in L.A., for those uh, that, that are listening, that are in the entertainment industry, uh, here is my reference. Seth is an incredible uh, costume designer, worker, team member. Reach out to me or find him online. Hire him for gigs. Um, and finally, I just have to say one of my favorite moments as a mother, as a proud mother, was when... Um, I forget what book it was, but John had reached out to me. John Waters, of course, we're on a first name basis. I'm actually having lunch with him on Friday, not to be super obnoxious, but I'm very excited. Uh, he He's in town. Um, but John had invited me to, it was like a book signing or a book reading. And um, I, I knew that I would have a plus one and I knew that, you know, I would be you know, backstage, you know, hanging out with John. And so I called Seth and I was like, are you available? Do you want to come with to this with me? And what was so lovely for me was I am you and you are me because we, I, I as much as it's strange for me to have these friendships with these people, I am still an obsessed fan, right? So the fact that I got to introduce you to John and we could show him your tattoos and, you know, uh, you know all of that, it was a, uh, a very lovely moment that you and I got to share. Seth, again, I adore you. I love you. Thank you for coming on the show. I know Michael and I are big fans of you and what you do, and we would love to have you back uh, for a later date, you know, for another episode. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and have a wonderful day, honey. Thanks for having me, y'all. Thank you, Seth. All right. Well, that was darling Seth Shubin. And you know what, Michael, we'll have to do is when we post about this episode on social media and stuff, I will include pictures of um, Seth's tattoos so that everyone can see just how committed Seth is to the Dreamlanders visually. Because those tattoos are quite good. I've seen, you know, uh, tattoos of Mink and Divine. I mean, I've seen people show them to Mink um, that, that aren't as uh, wonderful as Seth's are. He has really good tattoos. No, and they are so uh, extensive. Like, I mean, he really is a, yeah. a, a mural in some ways of, of this love of dreamland. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm so glad we got to talk to Seth. I love Seth in Seth's journey with me because it's just been so flattering and he's been such a wonderful addition to Peaches Christ Productions. He's such a talented, sweet, true fan of all of this stuff. And so it just it means a lot that we were able to have Seth on the show. And... 
Um, our next and final guest today, we could not do a Desperate Living episode without speaking to uh, another obsessed John Waters fan, someone I've known for over two decades, um, someone I met when I first moved to San Francisco, who really is the uh, premier drag king of the Bay Area and has single-handedly you know, organized a drag king pageant for over 20 years and is really uh, been a champion of drag king performers. And, you know, when, when Desperate Living came out, uh, as John has talked about, it was protested by lesbians. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> it was it was it was not a movie that the uh, feminist community embraced. And then years later, it's actually um, its biggest fans, John has, has said, tend to be lesbians. Uh, so it's this interesting, you know, uh, journey with the film. Um, now, our next guest doesn't identify as a lesbian. Our next guest is none other than the fantastic drag king performer. I love them to death. Let's bring on the fabulous Fudgy Fratage. Well, hello, everybody. It is my thrill and honor to introduce our next guest. When thinking about uh, John Waters fans uh, and specifically Desperate Living fans, uh, this performer and friend uh, was on the top of my list as someone I would love to talk to because I know how much they love these old movies of John's. And uh, specifically, I think because this person is in the performing arts community and is someone I've known for so long as a drag king performer who's created the longest running drag king competition in the world. Uh, and it's done so much more. Uh, we wanted to bring them on the guest today and uh, have a little chat. Without further ado, it's the fantastic San Francisco's own Fudgy Frotage. Yay. Yay. Hey, Peaches. Hi. And hi, Michael. Thank you so much for having me today. I am a huge fan of John Waters, and Desperate Living is definitely one of my all-time favorite films. Well, that's a great place to start. And, you know, Michael and I talk about the sort of discovery of John Waters as being, for a lot of us obsessed fans, kind of a life-changing thing, you know, as far yeah. as experiencing those movies. And so, you know, we, we uh, would love to know uh, how you were first introduced to the world of John Waters and uh, what that was like. Well, I moved to San Francisco from the East Coast in 1977, and I used to go to the Strand Theater, which used to have triple features for a dollar. And you know, I could that's the, pro, the first place that I saw Female Trouble, the Diane Linkletter story, and Pink Flamingos. So um, as a matter of fact, in 1978, Eight, I believe it was when John was touring Desperate Living, he brought it to the Strand, and I met Edith Massey there and John backstage. And um, it was uh, when oh, wow. he had Edie and the Incredible Edible Eggs was the band that would play before the film, and that's when I met Gina Shock, who was the drummer for Edie and the Incredible Edible Eggs who is now the Go-Go's drummer. That is amazing. amazing. So I remember being backstage 
being backstage and because what had happened was there used to be the gay community center at 330 Grove Street and there was a promo and Edie and the girls from the band were coming there to promote the film but it was not really very well promoted so there was like a handful of us that showed up but we got to meet them and then we got invited backstage at the film and so we're at the strand and you could you know you're behind the projection and you're watching the movie from the other side of the screen and then Edie at that time you've probably heard the recordings from from those sessions of Edie and Incredible Edible Eggs have you ever heard the band where she would sing yeah so yes. all she could ever really remember to say was hey punks get off the dope or no that was a song hey punks go kill yourselves or something wasn't it like that she kept saying like oh go strangle yourselves or something so i remember we we were trying to give her other lines to say and then john was just kind of back in the corner just like being really quiet observing everything and that was a you know the time period where he had long hair and of course his infamous mustache but i do not remember talking to john at all because he was in that in that filmmaker mode where he just was observing everything because he knew Edie couldn't remember any lines and I'm sure he thought the whole thing was hilarious <laughs> <laughs> but yeah then Edie would come into San Francisco and call us all up and say hey I'm in town we're performing so Fudgy when we talk about the John Waters connection to the drag community of course and the pop culture consciousness we look at divine and, and sort of the drag queen connection but when watching Desperate Living I have heard some queer people relate the character of Mole McHenry to the drag king experience where I don't know if that necessarily jives but I'm curious because you know you as curator of this amazing and legendary uh, drag king competition I'm curious one what your read on that character is as well as how drag kings connect to John Waters in general well that's uh, quite a question I don't know how many of the younger kings are aware of the film Desperate Living and I know from being a fan that Divine was supposed to play that role of Mole, but was off doing the Neon Woman or Women Behind Bars, whatever. But as far as John Waters inspiring drag kings, it's Divine who holds that role, I would say, because they just broke so many rules with drag, like making drag political, making drag crazy, wild, over the top, and not just dressing up to pass and uh, blend in. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I think Susan Lowe does such a great job as Mole. I oh, love fantastic. all of the... Uh, performances in this movie. And it's so strange actually getting to meet Sue Lowe, you know, um, in person, um, because she's nothing like the character at all. Like I would never ever be able to, like if I only had seen Desperate Living, I wouldn't be able to clock Sue um, as Mole McHenry, you know, out in Baltimore. Um, she's, you know, a, a very femme straight lady, um, you know, so it, it, it's such a great performance. Um, but the whole cast, you know, is this, it's this tour de force of, of a women-led cast of, of really dark fantasy and insanity. And in many ways, I think um, 
You know, while Divine would have been amazing, no doubt, it was an interesting departure to get to see a, a, a Waters film without Divine because before this, we hadn't seen that. So do you remember when you watched Desperate Living? Well, you had that amazing first experience, but over the years, do you remember or have any favorite scenes, favorite moments, things that stick out to you? Well, of course, there's Mink Stoll's performances, which are completely over the top as Peggy Gravel, where she's just, she starts out, she's screaming, the children are, tr- are having sex, they're trying to kill me. It, it, I mean, her performance in this film is incredible, as is pretty much everyone's when you look back at it. Now, to think like the wrestling scene um, <laughs> with that crazy... Um, <laughs> Uh, exaggerated vagina belt that prop that that's unforgettable and the dog food murdering the dog food murderous all that that scene where uh Liz Renee Muffy drives off and the and her husband's head is in the car and then his whole body just goes (laughs) horizontal I mean there there are so many scenes but it's funny before I watched it again and I was thinking back, like, what scenes really stick out? And there's that line when they f- are first arriving in Mortville and and Mink says, look around you, it's a village of idiots. And then they sh- put that close up on Edith Massey's roommate, whatever. I forget what that person's name is, but for some right. reason that scene just like popped into my head, like, oh my God, why did that particular scene come back as a haunting memory of it's just a funny person to cut away to and that's a great bit of trivia fudgy like a lot of you may not know um but if you read uh john's incredible book shock value um i forget her name as well but if you think edith massey's um eccentric you know she had this very eccentric roommate and the two of them you know lived together and and you could go to edie's store and actually meet them together her name might have been gene um it might have been It is Jean. You're right. It oh. is absolutely, you're completely right. It absolutely is. Um, so that, that bit of trivia is great. So when Mink says, look around, it's a village of idiots. Uh, <laughs> it does cut to Edith's actual roommate, Jean. That is a great bit of trivia. And I love that you brought up um, the flashback sequence because I think so many of us love that sort of uh, moment, you know, because it's so outrageous. <laughs> and uh, Liz Renee, like even this sort of um, bit players in John's movies often can steal a scene. And these are people like you you see once in one of his movies. And I love the performance by the babysitter where, you know, um, <laughs> Liz Renee comes in, she finds her baby in the refrigerator <laughs> and then she goes up to find the babysitter like fucking some guy. <laughs> Uh, you know, in her bed, and she's laying there, and 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 Liz Renee is shaking her. Oh, fudgy! Those are your Pomeranians, aren't they're they? They're barking. Yeah, they might. Okay, as, as long <laughs> are, as our extra special guests. They they tend to. I <laughs> well, gave them uh, something to distract them, but somebody was walking by. Sorry about that. Um, oh, if they keep oh, doing please. it, I'll grab them. It, it makes it real. But no worries. Um, I think we can just you know. Uh, make them part of the show. But uh, yeah, Liz Renee grabs the babysitter and is like, you know, what the fuck did you do to my baby? And the babysitter has one line. She goes, I don't know. I'm tripping. Right. And it's like. <laughs> In that heavy bolt. I love that line. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also love that Cookie Mueller. When Cookie Mueller is um, all dressed up at the end. And also, of course, Flipper's Bar. Like, that whole scene is just hilarious. And that yeah. classic line, like, if you don't like it here, there's something really wrong with you. You know, like, there's that, just that whole crazy <laughs> scene where they're in this bar, dyke bar and um, Cookie is beating that guy with a, um, a mace, a, you know, the medieval tool and yeah. and then dancing yeah. and then dancing really crazy it's in that and then later on when they all get styled from winning the thousand dollars in the lottery um i think that that covered a sex well the sex change operation was free because it was gotten at gunpoint and then all those clothes and guns and cookies out new outfit <laughs> The Dyke Terrorists. What I love about discussion of Mortville, and it's something that's come up a few times over the course of this episode, is that Mortville in many ways is sort of John Waters' version of Oz, right? Like we leave the suburbs and we go to this sort of magical queer place. But the first thing that is said when we get there is look at all of these idiots. Uh, And I think that that's an essential element to the DNA of what makes John Waters work. He celebrates the subversion but he also points out how stupid that can be, too. And I think that maybe it, it would you say a lot of the draw is that nothing is sacred to John Waters? Is that one of the things that pulls you to his work? Oh, certainly. I mean, it's that it, that's that old 60s and 70s um, mentality that you just would be blatantly disrespectful to everything because back then, being gay was just like the bottom, almost the bottom rung of the ladder. So if you didn't have a good sense of humor and you couldn't make fun of the establishment, then you were just being completely squashed by it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that I think that is a really good point that John's films were made for a particular audience in mind. Uh, they they were intentionally comedic, right? They They weren't these, some people go, oh, you know, uh, camp is an unintentionally funny movie. Well, in that in that definition, that's not what John's films were. They were made for a transgressive audience who understood his sensibility. And so many of those films, all of them really, are about holding a mirror up to straight society and saying, you're fucking boring and ridiculous and hilarious. And, you know, create a universe like Mortville where the sick and twisted people, you know, are are celebrated. And I think Peggy's journey, especially moving from the suburbs, the suburbs were so awful. Her children were so awful. Her marriage was so awful that like it, it drove her insane, right? She has a mental collapse and she's driven out. And, you know, by going to Mortville and meeting an evil queen and meeting other depraved lesbians, <laughs> she was able to... <laughs> Like, find herself, you know, and join the dark side, which I think a lot of us John Waters fans can relate to. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Desperate Living obviously holds a special place in all of our hearts. Um, Fudgy, because you um, have been around and you got to experience midnight movies at a classic venue like The Strand um, and and have, you know, uh, enjoyed watching John's career flourish, I have to ask, did you ever get to meet Divine herself? Oh, yeah. I met Divine many times when she um, 
when she would come to San Francisco. So um, she would play at the I-Beam a lot. And she also came to town to do um, women the Neon Woman. I saw the Neon Woman a few times. I went backstage. I, somewhere in my house, which um, there's a playbill with her autograph on it. And then at, after all the I-Beam shows, I mean, you could go back and say, oh, I loved your show. And I, my face would hurt from laughing so hard at all of her live shows. And she also played at Trucadero. And then she'd hang out at Cafe Floor in her, you know, caftan or moo during the daytime. And I know she used to frequent one of the bath houses, probably Rich Street, but, you know, I wasn't allowed to go into the baths. But, um, but my friends would tell me, <laughs> oh, Divine was at Rich Street last night. Because they lived here before oh, so I moved great. here and performed with... Um, the cock, mm -hmm. the cockettes. It was always great meeting Divine. I mean, never had too long of a conversation except for like, you know, idol worship kind of thing. So Fudgy, I have to ask, you talk about the transgressive, uh, you know, fingers up to the establishment of the work of John Waters. And earlier when we talked about drag and drag kings and, and drag in relation to how Divine uh, kind of created a revolutionary mold uh, and broke the mold with what they were doing. Uh, as, as, as a veteran of, of drag and the scene, you have seen a lot of changes. You know, now drag is very much on television. There's a whole different cottage industry for what drag can be. And I think sometimes people sort of forget these places that it came from. And I, I'm just wondering what you think this future generation who's maybe missing out on, on the lessons of John Waters and Divine, what can they learn from these movies? These movies that we have been told maybe don't have moral lessons, but maybe have queer lessons. Well, you know, they always say, know your history or know your history. And when people don't know what created some, an occupation, because now drag is like a lucrative occupation. If you don't know what the history of drag is, then you're not really properly representing drag. Because for one thing, you see like sometimes people will use the same name as someone. It's like, how could you use a name like Busta Hyman when that was like, you know, a drag king that was performing years and years ago? Like people have to know what has been done in order to evolve from it and not just like go full circle and start doing that and thinking that it's original. That is a, such a good point. And especially in the era of Google and the internet, there really is no excuse for uh, not, you know, to all you um, young or, or who new drag performers out there, when deciding what your drag name is, do a quick Google search, you know, just find out is, does someone already uh, perform with that name? Is there someone significant uh, historically who performed with that name in the past? Um, but you're right. Yeah. That, that, that's like the bare minimum you can do more than that. You can, you can learn about what drag was like before um, drag race, because I think drag race is, is fun and entertaining as it is. Uh, it's sort of, presented to a whole new generation of people um, this this notion that this is drag. Well, it is a part of drag, but it's only one 
snapshot of drag. It's it's one one version of drag, and there's this whole bigger world with history. I love that you uh, say that. I think it's so true. So speaking of Busta Hyman, as the as the uh, drag king expert, around I mean you really are around the world. You're the you're the the drag king expert. Uh, what is the best drag king name you've ever heard? Oh God, the best. I <laughs> yeah. mean, I, I can't just pinpoint one name. You know, I do like, there's someone currently performing under the name Rex Uranus. I love that name, Rex Uranus. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's lots I of great names, too. you know. There's Moby Dick, who's a good old friend and ex drag king expert and, but, um, you know, legend. like- And legend, like for the newer names, you know, like I love when someone has a name that makes me laugh because like right then I'm on their side. Like, oh, I like this person already just because I like their name. Yeah. Well, and that's what I was going to ask. Does a good name, uh, is it is it born out of comedy or a pun or is it is it how the person embodies the character for you? For myself, I came up with the, my name, Fudgy Frotage, before I started doing performing as Drag King. But Prior to that, I was performing under different, uh, I did a, a queen character called Rusty Scrotum. And then I used to play in bands under the name <laughs> Lou Reed. And for me, when I had the name Fudgy Protage, then I could move forward with my character. But I think other people just start performing and then they figure out their name later on. And I think that's like a really great full circle moment for us because Let's face it, Fudgy Frittage is one of the most uh, vile um, and, and explicit drag names out there. Which it's amazing. It, it, which is so great. It's so gross and so wonderful. And how how is that not uh, connected to your discovery of John Waters, right? Like, it, it, it's maybe one of the most John Waters-style, you know, drag names. And, you know, as someone who's watched you over the years and uh, been a friend and an admirer, you're a colleague, and, and you know, for, for folks who aren't familiar, Fudgy has carried the torch for, you know, really drag king culture in the Bay Area, which has a thriving culture. We have so many great kings here. And one thing I love about the community in San Francisco is that kings and queens often in many of our shows and performance spaces have performed together and on the same stages and alongside each other. Um, and then Fudgy has done a really great job of highlighting uh, kings through this competition, which is happening this weekend. Unfortunately, I think by the time people listen to this, it will be, um, it will have already happened. But when they go to look you up, Fudgy, where can they find you online? Well, we're going to be streaming from the Oasis, this show. So um, people oh. can always sign up for the Oasis TV stream and um, and then it'll be archived there. So at least they'll get to watch it. But for the kings that are uh, and fans that are outside of San Francisco and then for some of the people who are taking August off for the variant, uh, for variant reasons or, but you know, everybody's being safe with masks <laughs> and whatnot. Hopefully, you know, at least we've all been vaccinated and we're not gonna die. It's kind of like living in a current yeah. day Mortville, right. but not as much fun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, one day again, maybe, or hopefully. We need to do a Mortville themed show. 
there there used to be they used to have those like there used to be drag shows where it was like there would there was a John Waters themed show one time a couple times but it's long overdue let's do what backwards day you you can't get into the club unless you're wearing your clothes backwards, right? So that's that's going to be um, rule number one. So when 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 we can go out and party again, uh, Fudgy and I'll uh, we'll have a Mortville themed club night somewhere, um, and maybe we can convince uh, Mink to come, and you know, uh, and everyone has to wear their clothes wow, backwards. That'd be great. You know, and there will be um, glory holes for breasts, or the or they can wear the goon. Yeah, and the or they can costumes. wear costumes. The- you know, the leather daddy costumes. Yes, they can be leather daddies. Perfect. <laughs> well, Fudgy, thank you so much for coming on and giving us your drag king perspective. Uh, I love you, and I look forward to seeing you in person soon. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll do that Mortville Club night <laughs> in the future. Great. Thanks, Peaches. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. I, I had a blast. See you all soon. Thank you, Fudgy. In the flesh. And that was our interview with the fabulous Fudgy Furtage. You know, Peaches, I really just loved what Fudgy was saying about the Drag King connection to this film. Because when we were talking, it did occur to me that a lot of times when you see John Waters' work celebrated, it's often from a drag queen perspective. And so to discuss the kind of broader scope and spectrum of drag and how divine meant something to everybody, and how divine's whole presence transcends all of these things, it gave me a lot to think about. Absolutely. And and it's just such a... Th- I, I think that we, we've said it before during the interviews, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of finish with this. It's hard for me to put into words how important John is to cult cinema, and specifically to, like, me, personally, to, to this show... So Desperate Living is just one of many journeys that we'll take. And, and Seth and uh, Fudgy are just two fantastic John Waters fans, but we know there are more of you out there. We are going to do more shows on different John Waters films in the future. And uh, I really look forward to it. And and we knew that this show was going to be long because we knew that we love these movies so much that we could talk about them forever. Well, I mean, it truly is a testament to what the show is all about you know we are fans first and the idea of us getting to celebrate and worship at the altar of these movies when you and i get a chance to sit down like the nerds we are we want to talk about it like these celebrations as selfish as it is to say are as much for peaches and i as it is for all of you so uh yeah if thank you just for listening to us and you know like peaches said and a I was gonna. I was gonna try to tur- make it a, a, a church moment there. Oh, and amen. Like like you uh, you just finished a prayer. Thank you. I amen, felt I Michael. felt very Tammy Faye in that <laughs> moment. So. Yes, and for all of you parishioners out there who are tuning in week after week, uh, we want to thank you. Um, you are all children of the podcore now. <laughs> <laughs>
Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.